Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Life is good. Ann and I have been friends for a really long time. Yep, we met right out of college in our first jobs as radio producers, and we had a lot of fun living it up in the big city. And then we grew up, got married, and stood up in each other's weddings. And we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that interest us and you. And let's be honest, this year, there's no shortage of stuff to cover. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we already have. So welcome to Apparently. Life is good. So apparently, I'm not the only parent at Wits End trying to navigate that nagging question How much screen time is too much screen time? You know, for the last year and a half, screens sort of been the means to an end, right, Ann? Yeah, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics stopped discouraging, quote, screen time because it's no longer what it used to be. Oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Well, think about for the last year from school to socializing when we couldn't be face to face, screens sort of were the necessary evil, but families were kind of navigating screen time before COVID-19, and I know you and I have joked about this a million times, that we I, lo- I see the top of my son's head more than I actually see his pretty eyes. <laughs> so um, <laughs> do you keep tabs on the kids with screen time? I, we both have, we have iPhones, right? Yes. So I'm going to be honest, I don't really track them. Part of that, though, is because I... I track their access in a physical way. Like they are at school and there is some screen time at school, but then they have activities and then they come home and we have dinner together. And then they do have some screen time at night before they go to bed, but then I take their devices and the devices live in the kitchen. So it's the physical access is how I track them. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I, I'm the mom that set up the screen time and my kids hate it, but I, I set up screen time on their phones, but it's all kind of baloney, honestly, because I set how many hours that they can be on it with, with screens. I don't track the apps or like say how long you can be on YouTube or whatever, but inevitably my son will go to the iPad that's sitting on the charger in the living room and will self-approve <laughs> or he'll ask me more time <laughs> and I give it to him. So it's all kind of, it's all stupid, but I feel better having it in place. So it just makes me feel better to know that I'm, I'm trying to keep like speed bumps in the road to like slow him down from it. I don't know. It's, I should just turn it off, but no, but it also makes him aware that he's asking for more or that he needs your permission. It, it, it sets some boundaries, even if they're fairly porous. Right. Well, they keep their phones out of the room too, but there's been sleepovers where they're at somebody's house and I'll get the text message from my daughter like, hey mom, can you turn screen time off? Because I'm staying up a little bit later. And so I'm like, okay. And then sometimes I forget to turn it back on. So it's kind of willy nilly over here. Right. Well, do you remember a few weeks ago when we heard Facebook was going to create an Instagram for kids, that sort of for kids who were younger than 13? Yeah, scary. Yeah. Well, there was quite a backlash about that idea. And Facebook and Instagram tabled the sort of discussions because they they wanted to find out what parents, experts, and policymakers 
think about the project. So that was an interesting development, but it doesn't mean that social media is going away. So how can we empower our kids to make smart choices? How do we get them to make the decision to turn things off rather than having us nag or take things away? Yeah. So check this out, Anne. So according to a new book, these numbers like sit down. According to, a, okay. <laughs> according to a new book, the average teen spends approximately nine hours a day on a screen. What? And that doesn't include schoolwork. That comes to 63 hours a week or 3,276 hours a year, which equals 136.5 days a year. So if you are oh that gosh. teen, it means approximately 37.5% of your life is experienced through a screen. And that's assuming 20, also that's assuming 24 hours a day, which, which yes, there are 24 hours in a day, but you have to factor in sleep and stuff. So the amount of time that they, are on a screen, they're waking time. They're waking team. It's like your mind is blown when you see those numbers and you're like trying to think back to your day. Like how do my son spend yeah. that much? <laughs> Does he really spend that much time on the phone? It was crazy. That is crazy. So to decipher the crazy, to talk about kids and their digital worlds and how to teach moderation, we'd like to welcome Dr. Alex Packer. Dr. Packer is an educator, psychologist, and award-winning author of numerous books for parents and teenagers. Yeah, he has a PhD in educational and developmental psychology from Boston College and a master's in education from Harvard. His recent book, which comes out in mid-October, is called Slaying Digital Dragons and gets right to the heart of every parent's concern. And I'm so excited to talk to him about this because I got an advanced copy and I read it and it's really great. So how much is too much and how do we regulate our kids' screen time is the million-dollar question. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Packer. It's great to be with you. So first of all, hats off to you because I did get the advanced copy of the book and your your book reads so conversationally and uses, you're very, very crafty because you use patterns and techniques that get them to read more. You're, some pages read like a text message, so it's not just boring blocks of paragraphs because no kid wants to read that. And I found myself thinking about like with the quizzes and stuff in the book, it was like, and I'm dating myself now, but like reading Seventeen magazine and doing all the quizzes or Cosmo or all those things that I used to read as a kid and wanting to hurry and take the personality quizzes and stuff. That's what <laughs> that's what your book was like. And I thought it was brilliant. So to kind of get started with this, I was wondering... The key to your book is like trying to get the kids to recognize for themselves and getting through to them about what's happening. But again, they think online life is real life. And I I find that true. Can you flush that out with us a little bit, like what that really means? Sure. You know, the tone of the book, which you just mentioned, was very key to me because essentially I'm asking kids to look at their significant other. For most kids, that's their phone. (laughs) You know, they love it. (laughs) They miss it when they're not near it. And I didn't want to come across as uh, some grumpy Luddite who thinks these devices and the Internet is, uh, you know, bad. So I was very conscious of using a lot of humor and even a self-deprecating tone because I want kids to become mindful of their screen scene. That was the whole point in writing the book, encouraging kids to join a resistance, to push back about big tech, 
you know, we, we talk to kids about cyberbullying and sexting and privacy and a lot of, you know, that's very important media literacy. But I don't think most kids really understand the extent to which these devices and these technologies are hijacking our existence. You know, the, a, a child from the youngest age just grows up with these. There's never a decision made. And, you know, parents will set limits, but it's almost fighting a losing battle unless the child, the teenager, can be enlisted in looking out for their own screen scene and making sure it's healthy. All right. So you mentioned the significant other aspect. You work with kids and talk about this a lot. You know, what are some of the biggest takeaways you hear from kids about what parents don't understand about their attachment to their phones? Well, I think a lot of parents think of real life and internet time. And to kids, that distinction doesn't even exist. I remember once asking kids, I want to get the terminology right for a book. And I was saying, um, well, you know, when you log on to your phones each day, I mean, what do you call that? And, and they looked all perplexed. They didn't know what I was talking about. And I said, well, is that turning it on or booting up? Or and they said, well, we, we never turn our phones off. <laughs> so, you know, that right there showed how to, how out of touch I was with how they're actually uh, using these phones. Another thing that parents need to be mindful of is, you know, they tend to focus on how much time their kids are spending on their devices. And some parents think it's too much, and other parents think it's way too much. You <laughs> yeah. know? And I think that's not the discussion to have, because not all screen time is the same. And how you're spending those hours makes a big difference. I mean, are you creating or vegetating? Uh, is there a balance in your screen time between being focused and the stimuli assaults that constantly come at you? I mean, that's really important to, to understand. Are you connecting with people? Are you doing good in the world? Are you learning? Are you pursuing a passion? Right. So I think those questions are more important and more helpful for the discussion than focusing exclusively on how much time and limiting the time. I actually, um, last night I had my son take um, one of the quizzes, <laughs> the, the screen scene that kind of gauge. And he actually, doctor, he scored in the 40 to 60 range, which said that you may sometimes have difficulties controlling your screen time. And I went back because honestly, before he took the quiz, I was like, you're just going to flunk this because in my mind, like it's really over the top bad in our house. And and he scored moderately. And then I, I went through, I said, did you answer, buddy, did you answer honestly? And I went through and looked at his questions, how he rated them, never, rarely, sometimes or whatever. And to be fair, he did a really, I was like, there was maybe one I was questioning how he did it, but I was like, for the most part, he answered pretty honestly. So it be, but it became a dialogue in the house, like talking through all the questions and what, what his screen scene was. So it was, it was a good kind of jumping off point to talk about it. Have you, have you seen the documentary, The Social Dilemma? Yes, I have. So I tried to, so 
another good thing about your book is that it's relatable. I tried to get my kids to watch it with us because frankly, watching that scared the hell out of me <laughs> and how big text, you know, kind of lures you in and makes you want it and need it and become addicted to it. But it didn't really resonate with the kids. Do you have any takeaways from that? Or do you think it was not appropriate for a kid to watch? I think it was aimed more at an adult audience. Okay. You know, it was essentially a documentary with a lot of talking heads. And they did attempt at that kind of fictionalized family. Yeah. But I, I don't know how realistically that would register with uh, younger viewers. Yeah. I don't pull any punches with kids in this book. I really talk to them about the dark, dark side and how these devices are tracking us, manipulating us, addicting us, intentionally using design strategies, psychology, human nature to keep people engaged. Because the profit, the, the entire business model of big tech is built upon keeping you on that site. And an amazing aspect of this is that, you know, research very clearly shows that the type of information online that keeps you most engaged is fake, false, yep. conspiracy theories, bad news. And the algorithms that all these sites and social media use to keep you on their site doesn't care whether it's true or false. The algorithm isn't putting a moral judgment on that. So we have this situation where in order to keep us addicted to these sites, we're being furnished with information that's more and more agitating and stressful and arousing and divisive. And I'm very clear with kids, this has major serious consequences for our culture, our country, the world, climate change, the most important issues we're facing. And teenagers care about that. You know, people sometimes say to me, you know, teenagers aren't going to listen to what you're saying. But I think they will because they care about the issues. In two different studies, between 40 and 50 percent of teens said they feel addicted to their phones. And 90% of teenagers believe that too much screen time is a problem for their peers. And about three quarters of all teens believe that big tech is trying to manipulate them. So I think the ground is fertile and that if kids recognize what's going on and how it can affect them and their future and their relationships and their performance in school and all these things, I think kids will step up and want to ensure that their own screen scene is a healthy one. I'm encouraged about that in terms of hoping that the teenagers that, that we have in our houses um, might be smarter than we are in the long run. We've heard or read about the harmful effects of too much screen time before. This is not a new conversation. But could you walk us through what happens to an adolescent brain? You just talked about addiction. What happens when there is too much screen time? How can we get kids to understand or comprehend the warning signs of unhealthy screen time? You know, you say that a lot of kids do know that there is an addiction, but I'm not sure all these kids know just how much time they're spending 
relating to these phones? Right. I think kids do tend to underestimate the amount of time they spend. And in the chapter called Intelligence Gathering, uh, where kids are taking these wacky but research-based challenges, I ask them to estimate how much time they spend and then to actually use screen trackers to figure it out. So I think that's you know an approach to get them more aware of what they're doing. And when it comes to assessing the screen time, you know, teens need to look at how their time online makes them feel. You know, I ask them to list all the apps and how does using that app make them feel? Uh, what are the triggers that make them turn to their devices? Uh, what are the, the temptations? So, you know, all of those things begin to create this picture for the kids. And in this first section of the book, which is called Reflect, they get an understanding of their screen scene. And then in the second part of the book called Resist, that's where I really get into the meat of how these devices are trying to influence, control, manipulate them, and what types of negative consequences there are or there can be on their bodies, their brain, their psyche, their relationships, their privacy, their reputation. And then in the final section of the book, I show kids how they can reset their screen scene for a much healthier online-offline balance. The research is all over the map. And yes, there are studies that show that uh, excessive or the wrong kind of screen time can affect uh, teens' cognition, their ability to make good decisions, their judgment, their ability to focus, to remember things, to communicate effectively. And if you have deficits in those areas, that's going to affect uh, how you your academic performance and your relationships and your future options. But the approach I take is that the research is useful and it's still in its infancy. I think a lot of this will become better known as the longitudinal studies continue. The research is riddled with correlation versus causation questions. So what I would say to, to teens and parents is that the research doesn't matter. All that matters is how you, that individual child, reacts to your time online. Because it's going to affect kids differently because of who they are, how confident they are, what issues they have in their lives, and the exact nature of the time they're spending on the screen. So you talked a little bit uh, about like differentiating between good screen time and bad with like, are you creating? Are you consuming? And so on. And I, I bring up my kids a lot, but my son and his friends, my son built a gaming PC along with all of his friends. It seems like when you get to 13, that's what you do. You build your own computer. Mm -hmm. And so that was really great because he built it from like himself with his dad. But um, all of his friends, they say they're the most social generation ever because they play 
video games with each other and they talk online. I'm, I know I'm skewing and like boy related, but wait, Hannah plays Roblox. Oh, okay. So, so it's like Minecraft. That. Okay. So, <laughs> so you cited a study where a common sense media study, which I love that site too, saying that kids prefer to communicate with their friends by text rather than face to face. Yet my son thinks that they're the most social generation ever. How do you get kids to under, like, I'm, I'm okay with moderation or whatever, but it seems lazy to just play over Discord or whatnot or Snapchatting with somebody and texting rather than face to face. How do we encourage? Is that just like a, a lost cause to, to see that these kids would ever like hang out in the same room together without their phones on? <laughs> I hope it's not a lost cause because I, this is one of the great concerns I have. Communicating through a device is not the same as communicating face-to-face. And when kids say that texting is their number one favorite way to communicate, that concerns me greatly. Me too. (laughs) Um, The communications online are different in the sense that they tend to be, many of them, they tend to be brief. Uh, You know, if you're snapping back and forth or texting, many of them have very little or no body language or facial expression while you're communicating. I mean, yes, you can be FaceTiming on Zoom or any of those apps and see somebody, but it's a facsimile of communication in a way. And, you know, I have this hope that perhaps the experience kids had with the pandemic, where they couldn't be physically present with their friends, maybe that in some way made them realize how much they were missing by not being able to do that. Uh, But I think this is something we should be concerned about. A lot of uh, people, psychologists, theorize that one of the reasons for the significant drop in empathy since the period that cell phones became just ubiquitous for teens and now college students that that may have a a lot to do with the fact that we're communicating in, you know, bytes and bits and pieces and, you know, brief texts, and we're not getting deep into exchanges where you see someone's expression, you you feel their emotion, and you get into issues that, you know, you might just not feel comfortable doing uh, on Snapchat. Exactly. There was a big part of the book about empathy. And I feel like text messages or snaps, my kids don't have Snapchat, but are subjective. Like when you read something, you don't hear the tone. And just like you said, so, so that face to face, that's why I'm so, I'm pushing, especially in Chicago, our weather is really crummy. All the, like it's very short window where it's nice out. I'm like, go downtown or go walk downtown or bike or whatever to just have time face-to-face and talking with them. And it's it's really a struggle. Mm-hmm. Dr. Packer, in your book, you mentioned some tracking apps that are helpful in terms of tracking time. We know that those apps change by the minute. So um, what's your advice for parents who are trying to track the use? It's really a changing environment, right? Right. My My advice to parents is that they're going to need to do some research because these apps do change and different versions come out and they do different things. And without knowing the operating system, the browser, the type of device 
parents or kids are using, it's really hard to identify a single uh, app that would be the best. In fact, early on in the book, I have a, a sidebar where I say to kids, the minute this book is published, there are going to be things in it that are out of date because it moves right. so quickly. And, you know, don't get mad at me because <laughs> something may have, have no longer been uh, available to you. So I think in general, we all need to be doing research to stay on top of what these options are. There's obviously the the mental and psychological effects of screen time and so on. But I, I've said this to Anne before, and I don't know if I've even talked about it on other episodes, but I have neck issues and I've been in physical therapy and so on. And there was there's this one part of the book that I would love for you to bring up, something about tech neck. And I keep telling my kids, like, because they're looking down all the time, I said, you should go into physical therapy as a career because your generation is going to need a lot of physical therapy for all the looking down that you do. Can you talk a little bit about the weight that your head carries when you're looking down? It's just a little sidebar, but I, I thought it was very interesting. Yes, uh, tech neck is a real thing. And it comes from constantly looking down at your phone. <laughs> and, you know, when your head is straight up and aligned with your shoulders, you don't feel any weight. But the, you, when you lean forward, it can exert as much as 60 pounds of pressure on your neck. And if you are in that position for hours and hours a day, that's going to create strain on your neck. So uh, in the section I have on uh, sort of warning signs for physical consequences, uh, tech neck and poor posture uh, are there. And of course, if your eyes are glued to a screen all day, there could be eye strain, uh, dry eye issues, and poor hygiene. You know, there's it, a lot there that can happen that you don't necessarily think of associating with using your little electronic device. There's a constant push and pull with social media. And I think some kids know that they feel bad when they're scrolling through Instagram or Snapchat, but they'd rather be miserable with it than without it because it's like a, it's like a lifeline. Do you ever see kids break away when they know it's affecting them? I've known kids who have done that. I won't say it's common. I hope it'll become more common. I mean, I think we do need this resistance and we need more kids proudly proclaiming, oh, I don't use social media. You know, I've found it's not a good fit for me. You know, no judgment on other people. But social media hijacks your psyche. You know, it really takes over your identity because who are you on social media? You're essentially a brand. It's not necessarily who you want to be. You're creating a brand and that can promote artificiality. And everyone's putting the greatest hits of their life up mm, online. Yeah. And the selfie, the casual selfie you see may be the result of 300 uh, photos right. that kid took. And so much of it is, here I am having a great meal. Oh, we're having so much fun. Look at me on our wonderful vacation. Oh, here's my new pair of skis. You know, all that stuff. And it creates a false portrait of life. And for kids who are looking at that every day and seeing it, 
For some kids, it can lead to feelings of inferiority and uncoolness and depression. And that's a, a great concern I have about the impact of social media. It, it can take over your psyche. So I, I encourage kids to think about what they're doing, if it represents their values or not, and to use what I call brand sanitizer, <laughs> to be aware that their online trail, I know this is a cliche by now, but it's so true, their online trail may be with them for the rest of their life. And we see people in their 20s and olders who have, older who have wonderful opportunities, and then somebody digs up a tweet from when they were 16 or 21, and it destroys their life. So I think kids really need to be mindful about what they're doing online. And this pressure to post is also a huge force for kids. You know, it's important, you know, kids should post to share their life, but shouldn't let posting become their life. And I think for some teenagers, posting is how they view their life. Everything is filtered through taking a snapshot, a, a selfie, and putting it up there. And then, of course, that gets to, well, what do people think? How many likes did I get? Are they sharing it? Or, you know, all that stuff, which is even more insidious. Exactly. It was bad enough when, when I was a kid, just the pressure from grades and how I was doing in school was often over the top for me. And for kids today, all of life is scorekeeping. It's like a report card on everything you do and how you look and what you say and what you put up there. And it isn't even temporary. It can last forever. I'm not to get on my soapbox or anything, doctor, but uh, as a real life example of like kids curating their life, homecoming back when I when I was in school was standing in front of a fireplace, maybe your front porch, getting your pictures taken. Now you go to a forest preserve or a bridge or a a farm to get your pictures taken with your date or with your girlfriends so that you can post it on Instagram or whatever. And, and it's, it's so pervasive. Like it's such a production now for just a, like just for a dance. And I, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, that it's not important to them or whatever. It's just, just so funny that it's more about the picture that they want to post and where it is as opposed to just enjoying the moment and going to the dance. I totally right. make myself sound like an old person, but, but it's true right right now. It's happening right now because homecoming dances are going on right now. So I, I just laugh when I see all the rigmarole that people go through to get a picture when you're dressed up. I worry about that too. You know, if you're ever, say, in a public waiting room at the airport or in a museum, you'll realize everybody's buried in the phone. They're yep. experiencing their life through the phone They're standing in front of the Mona Lisa at the Louvre, and instead of looking at it, they're simply taking a photo, uh, a selfie with Mona in the background. (laughs) And there's this this new phenomenon. I think Sherry Turkle coined the phrase, but it's being alone together. And I find it very sad, you know, when you see everybody on a bus 
or in a lounge or in a restaurant, and they're all just on their phone. And I think that's going to have profound implications for our culture and for relationships. Yeah, that's scary. And we're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you one last thing here. If screen time has become a fight at home and we want to reset, as you suggest, how do we get there with our kids? What's the opening line to use to say, you know, can we talk about this in a way that doesn't make them defensive or just run away? That's a great question. (laughs) A million dollar question. (laughs) I think the key is that Parents need to create a partnership with their child over healthy screen scenes for the child, for the parent, and for the family, and to view it as a whole. Because I know so many families where the parents are even more addicted than the kids, and they are giving advice to the child or trying to restrict uh, screen time. I mean, that, that really doesn't work. And I think parents need to have a lot of discussions and to ask questions, non-judgmental questions, let their kids teach them things. Because I guarantee, you know, these kids know 100 times more than we'll ever know about how things work. They may not know as much about the impact or future implications, but they're the masters of this technology. So invite them to show you what they're doing, how things work. For teenagers, I'm pretty negative on parents snooping, you know, getting passwords and snooping into kids' private areas. Uh, They should be able to be silly and crazy and funny and stupid as teenagers, as we all were, without having anybody else looking over our shoulders. It's also important, don't judge or preach or take a moral stance about these things and to talk about it in the broader picture of what big tech is trying to do and make sure that their kids will know the extent of the tracking and the invasiveness and get them motivated to want to protect themselves. Yeah, have them arrive at the conclusion themselves rather than being told it. Right. And you can also ask kids, you know, if they're reticent about sharing anything, you can ask them in terms of their friends or their classmates. Yeah. You know, the question you'd like to ask your child, you can pose it indirectly in that manner. Totally. Thank you so much, Dr. Alex Packer, author of Slaying Digital Dragons, which comes out October 19th. I had an advanced copy of it. I read it. I had my son take one of the quizzes. It's really well written and funny and it's not dry. It's not the kids will read it like a graphic novel or any other thing. So and next to meal planning for the family, you know, like what's for dinner tonight, screen time and uh, social media is probably the biggest struggle in any household. Yeah. I'm going to say also in my household, (laughs) meal planning is right up there. Um, But Dr. Pegger, we appreciate your insight and we wish you the best of luck on your book launch. Um, We can't recommend this book enough and I hope that it is a bestseller. Well, thanks so much. It's been great to be with you. 
So apparently, we need to be vigilant about what our kids see on the screens, but we might need to be more relaxed about the actual time. And I'm talking about school-age kids, not toddlers, right? right? They are going to be on screens more than we like because that's the only option. Uh, You know, Anne, I know one way our listeners could reflect, resist, and reset themselves, like Dr. (laughs) Pecker said, for the kids. Tell me, Tracy, what's that way? (laughs) I think our listeners should reflect on how much they learn from our episodes. Maybe not. (laughs) And then resist the temptation to not tell anyone about our podcast. But then... Uh, I I smell uh what you're cooking here. You see what I'm laying down here? And then reset that (laughs) temptation and tell all their friends about Apparently and leave us a review on iTunes. Don't you think? Yes, we would love for you to rate us or leave a review. You know, tell us what you think. Uh, we'd be forever grateful. And we want your feedback and suggestions for making the podcast better. Yeah, so check us out on Facebook or Instagram, which is ironic because we're talking about social media. <laughs> yeah, but try not to exceed your personal limits on screen time when you do that. <laughs> and share a post if you like them. You can reach us via email at allparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is a WGN Plus podcast with help from producer Ben Anderson. I'm Ann Johnson. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. Apparently.